Welcome to this podcast episode of Narcissists in Divorce, The Narcissist Trap. I'm Dr. Supriya McKenna. I'm a former family doctor, but my life's true work is working with people who have fallen prey to narcissistic relationships of any kind. But I'm particularly busy in the area of divorce. Over the last few years, I've been very proud to become an Amazon best-selling author on the subject of narcissism, and my brand new book, Narcissists in Divorce, From Love Locked to Leaving, is out right now on Amazon. That's the first book in the Narcissists in Divorce series, and the follow-on to that will be out in the spring, and that's called Narcissists in Divorce, From Leaving to Liberty. And please do note that although I use the word divorce, these books are equally applicable to anyone leaving a serious intimate relationship with a narcissist, whether they are married or not. I also have a book out called The Narcissist Trap, The Mind-Bending Pull of the Great Pretenders. And that book might be useful in helping the people around you who are supporting you to understand more about what happened to you and about narcissism generally. I'm also the co-author with British divorce lawyer Karen Walker of Narcissism and Family Law, a practitioner's guide. And between us, Karen and I have trained thousands of family law professionals in narcissistic personality disorder, including judges, lawyers, mediators and social workers. For further narcissism resources from me, please do visit thelifedoctor.org or drsapria.com. And that web address has the doctor fully spelt out. Well, today, Karen and I are delighted to welcome Rory Innes to the podcast. Rory is the founder and CEO of the Cyber Helpline, which is a free confidential helpline for individuals who've been a victim of cybercrime. So they help victims contain, recover and learn from cyber attacks by linking them up with cybersecurity experts, which, of course, could be relevant if you're divorcing a narcissist who get up to all manner of things as a result of their narcissistic injury, including cyber stalking, revenge porn and hacking accounts. So I think this is going to be a really interesting discussion so Rory thank you so much for joining us Rory thank you so much I find what you do absolutely fascinating and um, I think those listening in will do so also Um, I just wonder if you could start by giving us a bit of an overview of what it is you do do and and how you do it yeah sure and I I think one of the really important things to understand in this kind of space of cybercrime and online harm is that not enough is being done to support victims. And so millions of victims every year are facing either skilled cybersecurity criminals or really malicious kind of motivated individuals like ex-partners, and they're not really getting the help they need, either from a technical side or from a law enforcement side. And what we realised was that it's the cybersecurity professionals who have the skills and expertise to really step in and help close this gap and support for victims. So we started the Cyber Helpline four or five years ago with the aim of giving all individuals in the UK free expert help when they need it, so when something has happened online. We have a team of 70 volunteers and a chatbot that provides a 24-7 service that basically helps people understand what's happened and recover from cybercrime and then ensure that they can go on to be kind of secure and have their privacy online. A big part of what we do 
is cyber stalking and online harassment. And often that is in this kind of ex-partner space. So really interesting to kind of talk through that aspect of this today. And what kind of things do you find that people do? Because I think on the one hand, um, you get people who really don't understand how all of this works and are pretty oblivious to how somebody might be stalking them and be entirely unaware of that. And then you have the other side, people who are quite well up on what I'd call gadgets. Um, and so we're able to put things in place that their spouse would never even think about. Do you find that that's, that's very much the case? And what, what should people look out for um, if they might suspect that they're being cyber stalked, for example? What we often see in relationships is that a partner has laid the groundwork for stalking and monitoring the individual's activity online during the relationship. So it may be that, you know, they're the person who buys the devices, they're the person who sets up the devices, and that gives them access to username and passwords, to how those devices are set up. And it's really, really common where there has been some sort of domestic abuse controlling behaviour in the relationship, that that groundwork has been done. And what that does is it enables things like location sharing, um, access to online accounts, and really enables what then becomes stalking if the other partner manages to escape the relationship. And so really, what to look out for really early in a relationship is do you have your own privacy and security online even from your current partner because even though you love that person now and that relationship may be really good now if that relationship ends it may be that that sharing of passwords sharing of technology sharing of devices is one of the things that leads to you being kind of compromised and leads to that cyber stalking behavior post the relationship breaking down so you'd recommend that actually even when somebody is in a perfectly happy relationship that they don't share passwords or share devices as a matter of course we would advise clients to make sure that any email address that they provide to us as a divorce lawyer is something that no one else has access to so obviously there's the the point about not perhaps using a work email but more particularly not using an email that was on a shared computer that um, their spouse or partner might readily have access to. But should there be other things that we should be looking out for, as well as just email email accounts that, that might have had a shared password? Yeah, definitely. And so I think it, it sounds a bit dramatic for, you know, the kind of cybersecurity expert to say, you know, trust no one. But it is just, it's really true that if you can kind of demarcate your own online environment. You know, you are the person who knows your email password. You are the person who knows your iCloud or Google password that accesses some of the things on your phone. Then you're the one who is in control. And the minute you share that information, you lose control. And so, you know, what are the things that we really typically see when we see these types of cyber stalking? And and particularly where it is, an ex-partner or a current partner. So physical access to devices is actually still one of the most important things. You know, if that person at some point has had physical access to phones, to accounts, to computers, then they can simply access the devices and read content. They can potentially put software on those devices that allows them to 
do some stalking, you know, look at location, get access to that device. Really common that they those individuals would be obviously heavily connected to their partners on social media. So they'll understand who their friends and family are, who their friends and families, you know, Facebook and Instagram accounts are. And they'll be able to monitor those individuals as well as their partner. But often creating fake profiles on social media to enable even if that individuals get if that individual gets blocked, then they've got these fake accounts that they can use to monitor, you know, the partner, their friends and family. And so really understanding who your social media connections are, who's got access to your account, even just from a public kind of connection point of view, is also really important to try and get some of that kind of privacy online. We see all sorts of things from, you know, relationships breaking down, devices being stolen. So an iPad gets stolen, which is part of the Apple ID, and that enables them access to email accounts and text messages and photos for a period of time. You know, we also do see malicious software. We do see tracking devices and and bugs that are planted in the home. When you say malicious software, what what do you mean by that? Really, it is just a piece of software that is designed with a usually to hide itself and to perform some sort of malicious activity. That might be putting a piece of software on your phone that will constantly tell the other person where you are allow them to listen to phone calls, allow them to see your messages, allow them to use your camera possibly, and also, you know, just access all of that content. So it kind of enables the stalker to put that individual under surveillance using one of their devices, usually mobile phone. So does the sort of perpetrator have to have contact with the phone to put malicious software on it, say if it is a phone or an iPad, or can they do it remotely? Can they do it without actually even being anywhere near the the device? It's much easier to do it with physical access, um, much easier, but it can be done remotely. So for example, if if you've got an iPhone and I know your Apple ID, I know your password, then I can remotely... um, put that stalkerware onto your phone or I can send you a text message with a link in it and get you to click on it, which enables that malicious software to go onto the device. It's definitely easier with physical access, but it's possible remotely too. Oh, wow. Goodness. It's such a scary world um, you know, when you don't know what, what can happen. And, and, you know, so many people are unaware of what they need to be aware of, um, what they need to be thinking about. So it's, um, it's it's clearly something that needs to be given quite careful consideration in this sort of situation. Yeah, it is. And I think that one thing that is a bit of a misconception is that cyber stalkers are doing something really technical. Most of the time, it is normal, everyday technology is being used maliciously as part of the stalking. So, you know, maybe the person used to live in your home, they've still got access to your smart doorbell, to your smart speaker. You know, they've got still got access to a shared computer or, uh, you know, they know your passwords. The, the challenge with that is that one, you have to understand your own online footprint. So what accounts and devices do you have? What technology do you have around you? And then you have to engage in this process, which is, okay, how do I secure that? 
how do I remove that person's access now that they're no longer in the relationship or or they're stalking? And that, that can be a tricky process. And so what tends to happen is that there is that access that is there as part of the relationship or towards the end of the relationship. And it's something that can be easy to miss that enables some of the stalking. And a really basic example of that is that we had one individual who had done everything, you know, she'd reset her password. She had closed down a lot of accounts. She'd, you know, kind of factory reset all of our devices, but the person was still understood who she was speaking to on the phone and when. And after a bit of digging, we just realized actually that person is still paying the phone bill and was able to access the calling records. So the challenge for individuals is this is a really stressful time. They've got a lot going on, you know, maybe a divorce, maybe they're talking about what's going to happen with children. They're scared. The stalking, you know, is, is constant, but you're trying to get a logical process where they're going through all of their accounts and devices and trying to work out what happens. There's all sorts of ways that I hadn't really thought about since I've been doing this work. Um, I've heard terrible stories. For example, um, baby monitors that have been connected that the the narcissistic individual who no longer lives in the house has access to. So they can watch the baby in the middle of the night. The cot might be next to the the mum's bed, say, or the dad's bed, you know, usually the mum's bed, I have to say. They can basically just go in and and look to see what's going on. Alexa is another thing that, uh, so you mentioned smart speakers. There's a lot more that you can do with those than just listen to things, aren't there? I mean, uh, you can actually listen in remotely to to someone's um, conversations, etc. I mean, can you explain a little bit about that? Yeah, and that that is also really true that this isn't just about, you know, phones, tablets, computers, and online kind of accounts like email accounts. There is all sorts of, of technology that both people have had access to and the family have had access to that enable just everyday life. And at that point that that person leaves, that means that those things become suspicious until you can prove they're kind of secure. And so things like doorbells, you know, seeing people come and go and being able to log into a browser and see who's coming and hear who they're talking to on the doorstep. You know, things like Alexa, where you're able to use kind of drop-in functionality, where you can turn the speakers into a kind of microphone and listen, but you can also communicate and talk and send messages. Now, obviously, you have to have the right access to do that, but that is more than possible if you've been married and living together. We've also seen listening devices that you can just buy online, you know, hidden in the home, you know, hidden in teddy bears in the kid's bedroom, behind plug sockets, Again, the groundwork laid during the relationship or through access to the house to see the kids over time put in place so they can do that monitoring. And then the other bit that we see a lot is also the the children's devices. The kind of stalker may give kids devices for Christmas or give them devices they can use, which are loaded up with some sort of functionality to help them access location. Um, And maybe the devices they've got anyway that they're taking to the stalker's house when they have visits it's really looking at all of the technology around and understanding how it could be used if it's being used and then if it is being used what you can do about it essentially so if you are in a relationship um which you feel is an abusive narcissistic relationship but um you haven't yet taken the step to do something about that so you're living in the, the sort of the chaos and the difficulty and you're feeling 
very derailed and, and marginalised all the time. I suppose when you're being love bombed, then devalued, you've got to look out for the generous gift that might be a technological nature that actually could bring with it all sorts of hidden means of just keeping tabs on you that you may not be aware of. If you're wondering whether your partner really is a narcissist, please do check out my online course, Is My Partner a Narcissist? Knowing for sure. And if you want to understand narcissistic behaviours, you may be interested in my Demystifying the Narcissist online course. Both are available on drsapria.com. What's the kind of strangest thing, the thing that, you you know, even surprised you that was used as a, as a kind of method of, of stalking? What's really interesting in these cases is that because of the lack of often technical understanding or expertise, and because the user is constantly aware that the stalker is, is watching them, monitoring them somehow, it's, it's common they get to this kind of state of hypervigilance where everything is part of the stalking and every piece of technology around them. So you end up in this state of hypervigilance. And what that means is that when somebody comes to you and explains the stalking behaviour they've experienced, it can just be this absolute deluge of activities and things. And so you kind of spend your time thinking, okay, what is technically possible? What's not technically possible? What's unlikely to be malicious? And kind of sorting through all of these events. And sometimes you get some things that are that sound really odd and they start off in that bucket of that is incredibly unlikely. You do a bit of investigation and actually you realise that something is going on there. And we have one that springs to mind where we had a, a woman who was um, divorcing an ex-partner. Um, he had actually moved out of the country but would visit um, relatively regularly, the, the UK, um, and he and he was displaying a range of stalking behaviours, including monitoring, you know, malicious software, cameras in the home, all, all sorts of stuff. And one of the things she told us as part of that um, kind of initial, here's what's happening part of the case, was that every so often her car would make a really loud cat meowing noise and she would get stressed, she'd pull over, She'd check under the bonnet, was there a cat in there? What was happening? She couldn't find anything. She'd kind of set along her way and keep driving. And so really easy as a cybersecurity expert to think, okay, that sounds a bit crazy and is unlikely to be part of the stalking. But it kept happening and kept happening. And it kept happening at certain locations that were relatively meaningful for her. And so we had a team look at it. And we, you know, so she had a, a a pretty smart car in terms of technology. We had a team take a look at the kind of manual and try and really dig into what was going on here. And it turned out that there was a bit of functionality where you could set different noises to go off at different locations. So for example, if you were close to your mum's house within a certain radius of that location, you could play a certain noise 
and that would kind of alert you that you were close to that person's house. Um, so what the stalker had done was set a bunch of kind of key locations that were meaningful to her and them with this really loud cat noise. So as she would drive around, this really loud cat noise would come over the radio uh, or over the stereo. And so just an example of one, something that sounds a bit crazy, but actually was part of the stalking behaviour and would have been really easy for, you know, the police or a stalking charity to miss, but also how individuals will use any piece of technology, any functionality to remind the victim that they're being watched, that they're there, and that and create that kind of campaign of stalking and fear that the victim experiences. I mean, it, you know, just just sort of listening to that. I mean, even the threat, um, even if they're not stalking you, the fact that they could potentially say, "I'm going to stalk you. I know exactly what you're up to. I'm really good at technology." Um, it, the fear of that, you know, the fear that's instilled into a victim by that, that on its own, even if they're, they're, you know, there's no actual stalking going on, that's big enough, you know, to make a person look crazy, um, you know, to the police or whatever. But you know, when it's it's things like that that you've just described. I mean, it really really is sort of messing with the person's mind, reminding them, I'm still in your life, I'm watching you. Yeah, and, I, and also, if they've done that in the car, the danger then is, what else have, What else has he done? Then she starts to be suspicious about the car, and then she starts being less social, then she's getting more isolated, but she's also being isolated in her own home where she's she knows that she is compromised. And so that spiral of, stalkers isolating their um, victim, removing, you know, if you don't trust accounts and devices during a pandemic, it's a really tough period of time. You can't communicate with friends. You can't do your online shopping order. Um, And so all of these things just have such an impact on victims' lives. As you say, you know, even doing an online shopping order, that could give away a lot about you. If they are able to see what you've, um, you know, if you're having people over or whatever, if you've bought loads of wine or, you know, whatever, there's there's all sorts of things that they they, they can see from things that you wouldn't think were necessarily particularly valuable as sources of information. Yeah. You know, in the pandemic, we saw a big, jump in this type of behavior stalking but we also saw uh, something that we've always seen in stalking cases the giving of gifts you know leaving gifts on a doorstep you know leaving gifts but what we've seen a lot is using kind of couriers you know buying stuff off amazon getting it delivered and so you know even when you open the door the amazon guys there are giving you a parcel usually a kind of relatively positive experience and it turns out to be a present from the stalker, you know, all of those things and all of the kind of technology that is around you in your life being used against you, it it can feel, you know, a big part of the stalking definition is actually what is the impact on the victim? And the impact on the victim can be, you know, the fear of violence, the mental health, physical health, having to change jobs, move house, you know, stopping doing the school run to pick up your kids because you're worried that person's going to turn up. You know, all of these impacts that just make stalking. One of our victims once described stalking as it's like a slow death that you just can't get help with. And so these stalking, the impact is huge, but these stalking cases also can go on for years. And the impact these individuals is terrible. So if somebody wanted to um, consult with you, Rory, they you know, say they they have been in a situation where they've been sharing 
cyber information during their marriage, during their relationship is now over. Um, they're concerned that suddenly that their former partner seems to know everywhere they're going and everything they're doing and they don't understand why. How should they make contact with someone like um, yourself and, and what would be the steps that would be taken in the first instance? Somebody can either come to us directly and just come to the cyberhelpline.com. You know, there's a clear kind of pathway there to get help from us and they will they will describe what's happened to them. We will assign that case to one of our cyber stalking experts. And we will follow uh, defined what we call our cyber stalking action plan, um, which is also um, public information on our website. A lot of the stalking charities like the National Stalking Helpline or Action Against Stalking, if there is a technical element to those cases, then quite often they will then refer that to us and we will co-work the case with those stalking charities. Um, so it doesn't really matter whether you go to a stalking charity first or you kind of come to us first. Really what we do is we work through a process to understand, first of all, what is happening? So what are the stalking behaviours that this person has experienced? What, who is this individual? We will ask them some specific questions that help us understand the risk in the case. And we'll also understand what is their online footprint and, you know, what's their devices, accounts, who else is involved? Are there children who have devices and technology? Is there access from the stalker to those children? And kind of map out the situation as is. And at that point, we kind of build a plan for what are we going to do here? Who do we need? Are the police already involved? Is a stalking charity already involved? Has it been risk assessed? Is there a safety plan in place to keep the family safe? And then we kind of work through a process of once we've dealt with that, we've got the background, we have got the right skills into the case. At that point, we can look at what are their priorities because often there will be a really um, time-sensitive priority like you know, they are sharing sensitive information like revenge porn or they are accessing the bank account and taking money out or the location um, is being shared by the individual and they need, they need to hide from that individual. Work through those priorities. And then we go through how do we collect all of the evidence of compromise of, of the stalking behaviours and get those in a format that's useful for working with the police. And then over time and in line with a safety plan, how do we make sure that we are giving that individual and their family their kind of security and privacy online again? How do we make the person that we're working with feel like they are secure online, they have their privacy, they can trust their accounts and devices? The stalker might still be there, they might still be knocking on the front door, but they can no longer get in. And that's the point where we can get them to from a technology point of view as the police and the stalking charities work on you know, what's going to happen here. Is it a non-molestation order? Is it a stalking order? Is this person going to be arrested and charged? So the ultimate aim is, you know, for us, getting them their privacy and security online while the stalking, the kind of core stalking element is dealt with. And also you're having to make decisions in there of... If you do find compromise, so for example, if you do find that your ex-partner does have access to your email account and is reading your emails, it may not be the best decision to remove that access until you can ensure that you're safe and the evidence has been collected. Because what you don't want to do is remove their email access, 
and then they change their behavior and they go to something that's more dangerous, like turning up at your house or doing something different. My brand new book, Narcissists in Divorce, From Love Locked to Leaving, is out now. For more information and online courses about narcissism, please do check out my websites, thelifedoctor.org or drsapria.com.